Home is a member of the Boing Boing Podcast Network. For more information, visit boingboingpodcasts.com. And to learn more about this show, visit homestories.la. That's where the show notes are. There's lots of extra background on the stories. You can subscribe to our new mailing list from there as well, homestories.la. This one actually is one of the first 300 television sets ever made by RCA. And that's the very first Sony TV. Looks like a little rocket ship with a baseball visor. And that was the first portable TV, which was made by Philco and looked kind of like a big transistor radio. That's like the Model T of televisions. Uh, RCA made like a half a million of them in 46. So that was really the first television that everybody had. Now this one next to it is made out of Bakelite, which is the world's first plastic. Uh, There's a British TV. Phillips looks like the astronaut's helmet with a visor. The little sharp one looks like the lunar lander. This set is interesting because... The tube picture size is only about three inches. So that's the TV that all the mothers said, don't sit so close, you go blind. I have one of the rare Farnsworth TVs because he did go into business. He just wasn't as successful as as RCA and some of the other companies. I've Got a Secret, presented by Winston, America's best-selling, best-tasting filter cigarette. Yes, Winston tastes good, like a cigarette should. This is the famous Dr. Philo T. Farnsworth who invented electronic television. <laughs> Doctor, truthfully, are you sorry? This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. There is, in a mid-century house sitting on a little rise just east of the UCLA campus, what its owner calls a dreamland of televisions. Half museum, half shrine. My name is Phil Savinick, and I spent the first 25 years of my life watching TV, and probably the next 25 years making television programs, and now with whatever's left, I'm sort of using television as an interpretive uh, medium. Uh, using it as a subject matter for further exploration of what is this one-eyed monster that sucked our brains out through our eyeballs. Phil's a documentary producer and a collector of vintage TVs, although to call him that really doesn't do justice to the size of the thing. He likes to talk about how he's turned the living room of his house into a half-assed TV museum. Those are his words, not mine. I think it's supposed to be self-effacing, but believe me, There's nothing half-assed about it. Not having a lot of space, being a home. You know, when it was in my office, I had a lot more televisions. Now that it's in my home, I have to be pretty selective. So I pick ones that are either really weird or eccentric or historical in some way. Because, I mean, I already have probably 50 or 100 TVs in the house. And uh, I don't want it to seem excessive. You might think someone with 50 to 100 TV sets in his house, plus an enormous collection of TV memorabilia and ephemera and his own TV-themed art, you might think that someone like that must just flat love TV, which he does and doesn't. That ambivalence about the box, that push and pull, it's defined most of Phil's life with TV since he was a kid. Well, I grew up at the same time television grew up. So even as a young kid, I saw those great variety programs and the the amazing children's shows and the commercials and wrestling. 
So I spent more time with the television than I did at school, certainly more than at any religious uh, organization. Probably spent more time watching television than I spent sleeping. It really was a constant friend. It was a teacher. It was my window on the world. Whatever I thought the future was going to be like was from what I watched. The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, starring the entire Nelson family. Here's Ozzie. And then I began to realize the images and the image of life that were projected on television I really had nothing to do with me. Whereas a kid, I might have said, oh, I wish I had a family like Ozzie and Harriet or Father Knows Best, these ideal situations. By the late 60s, I realized there were no ideal situations, and there actually was a difference between fiction and fact and propaganda and advertising and just pure fantasy. As a kid, I didn't know the difference. It w this was my best friend. He was in my living room. He just kept spewing wonderful stories at me. When I was a teenager, again, the war and Nixon and social unrest and the civil rights movement, television became completely irrelevant. And it wasn't that I abandoned it. I felt it had abandoned us. So there he was, caught in between. As a student at UCLA in the late 60s, Phil began examining what it was TV had handed him. I saw things and learned things I would not have experienced in a million years. And I saw endless commercials. Okay, selling a dream of consumerism, selling a very white dream of products, brands, that kind of thing. Did I realize what it was doing at the time? No, I'm a kid. I'm a consumer of images. Um, by the time I was, uh, you know, at, at UCLA becoming an artist, I realized these images were my contemporary landscape. This was my environment. And at school, I used to be ridiculed because I used to paint television sets. And I would say, well, an artist reflects the, the world that they live in. If it was the 18th century, I'd be painting seascapes and landscapes. But because of when I live now in the 20th century, I'm painting TV-scapes. His teachers thought he was nuts. Most of them were fans of abstract expressionism, not clown paintings with TVs in them. And the people who understood, interestingly, were in the television business and the movie business. I had an opportunity to work on some movies. And because I'd seen so much, I had a visual literacy. My generation, your generation, we grew up seeing so many images that we actually developed a visual literacy that no generation before us had. When I was 20, I went to work in the movies because they didn't have anybody from my generation. And I began doing documentaries, and ironically, a lot of documentaries about television. Who better than me? I loved it so. He had a pretty good career writing and producing TV specials. 50 years of the Disney studio, 20 years of HBO comedy, the Mary Tyler Moore Show reunion, that sort of thing. They'd sometimes rent old TV sets to use for props. They'd rig them up and run old clips through them. And I fell in love with the boxes. And I thought, these are the greatest things I've ever seen. Now, if I wanted to collect Renoir paintings, I couldn't really afford very many. If I loved black and white TVs, I could be the king. At first, the sets lived in Phil's office. Later, when he closed his office down, he moved them into his house as a sort of giant, 
multi-tentacled sculpture. I went the first eight years without having any of them hooked up. Reason being, television for me at that point, and we're talking during the, the Bush Junta, was all propaganda, all lies, all corporate image making. I love money, I love the Hiltons, whatever it was, I wasn't interested. So I didn't watch television for eight years. Uh, at that time, I cultivated the collection into more of a display. Uh, luckily, during that period of time, I did some clips for the Emmys one year and they rented my television collection. And they built these wonderful stands to display them on the stage. And then at the end of the show, I asked the producer, could I keep the stands? So when I brought those home, then I could turn my living room into a television museum. So I brought my favorite sets out of storage and I started to construct this sort of dreamland of televisions. It's a little hard to describe what Phil is talking about here. The pictures in the show notes may give you some idea, but only some. To call it a dreamland, though, that does come pretty close to capturing it. It's like a pocket history of the last hundred years of design, art, communications, popular culture, but shaken up, exploded, deconstructed, and reconstructed in some way that reaches for a truth deeper than simple chronology. And he lives with it. And in it. Every day. Bill's collection is... Such a phantasmagoria that I ask him to indulge me in a little thought exercise. If he were, for some reason, to disassemble his collection and then reassemble it in a straight chronological order, which would admittedly be a lot less alluring from a historical and home decor point of view, what could we infer about ourselves from that timeline? The history of television is sort of the history of the disenfranchisement of the American family. When it began, televisions were very expensive. $325 in the 40s was thousands. So basically there was one television uh, on your block. One family was rich enough to have a television and everybody else on the block would come by and watch it. Television became a very communal event and a very neighborhood event. Then as time went on and more families could afford televisions, it became less of a community and more of a family event. The success of variety programs like Ed Sullivan was there would be a rock act for the kids, there would be a comedian for grandma, there would be a crooner, there would be a a, a broadcasting. You reached the broadest audience. Then as time goes on and TVs became more affordable, there became the personal television. Then you were no longer linked to your community or your family. It was a private experience for you. So yes, a progression of looking at the TV sets is a progression of the disenfranchisement of America from each other. Before TV took center stage in the story of everybody's family, though, it defined the story of one family. Popular Science presents a backstage preview of television, the newest miracle of modern electrical engineering. Technicians in the Farnsworth Philadelphia laboratories have helped to make television, the dazzling dream of the decade, a practical reality today. Mr. Philo T. Farnsworth, shown at the right, is working on the image dissector tube, a photoelectric camera tube of his own invention. Basically, he was this character who invented television at 15. Well, actually, he was this character who came up with the idea for television at 14 and actually had a working model by the time he was 21. He completely changed the world, and yet he didn't profit from his invention. He was squeezed out of the financial and the business end of it. 
and died penniless, heartbroken, and drunk. It's one of the great, mostly unknown, true dramas of the 20th century. The story goes that young Philo was plowing a potato field in Idaho one summer day when he looked down at the harrows he'd made, the long horizontal lines in the dirt like the lines of a musical staff, and he had a flash of insight. If he could figure out a way to break down visual information into a stacked series of lines and translate those lines into electrical impulses, the impulses could be sent in a stream over the airwaves and reassembled at the receiving end. It was the big bang of the communications business. Philo Farnsworth should be one of the most famous names in the history of American industry. But a bruising patent battle with RCA left him broken. He had some bad luck along the way. And the vast rewards of what he'd made never reached his door or his family's. He died in 1971. My name is Philo Krishna Farnsworth, and I am one of the grandsons of the late Dr. Philo Taylor Farnsworth, who is the inventor of electronic television, amongst other um, notable inventions. How did it happen that Philo Farnsworth's grandson Krishna and his family happened to be visiting Phil from their home in Northern California the day I showed up? I'd like to tell you I planned it that way, but the truth is, it was just a coincidence fate took a hand. There's been a lot of that sort of thing in the story of Phil and his collection and the Farnsworths. The strands have woven themselves together there in Phil's living room. It started about 15 years ago. Phil was deep into collecting by then and well-versed in the history of TV. He was working on the Emmy broadcast that year. And they were going to, it was the 75th anniversary of the invention of TV, and they were going to honor... Um, Tom Sarnoff, who was head of the Academy Foundation. And I said to the producer, you know, I have nothing against Tom Sarnoff, but television was invented by Philo Farnsworth, and his widow is still alive. And when he pointed the television camera at a human for the first time, he pointed it at her. If you're going to honor the invention of television, you should really invite her. And they did. And I stalked her. And it wasn't hard because amid all the TV stars was this woman in a wheelchair. And I found her right outside the ladies' room and I got down on a knee and we chatted and we just had the best time. And every star that came out of the ladies' room, I introduced Mrs. Farnsworth as the mother of television. And finally, as Glenn Close came out, and I don't know Glenn Close from Adam, and I said, you know, this is the mother of television. And Glenn Close got down on her knee and she kissed Mrs. Farnsworth's hand. And her handler asked her, weren't you embarrassed? And Pim Farnsworth said, not a, not a bit. A few years later, Phil got wind that Philo's surviving sons were in the process of selling off some of the family artifacts. They needed the money. I contacted them and I said, uh, you know, uh, I really would like to have some, you know, for my half-assed TV museum. And um, they said, we know who you are. Mom has a picture of you that she had taken at the Emmys that year. And we have the letter that you wrote her. And they said, well, of anybody, we live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, you're in Hollywood, you'll get the museum built. And thus began my adventure uh, trying to get this story told. One more jump cut now to 2013. 
the TV Academy honored uh, Dr. Philo Farnsworth with their Hall of Fame honor. And they invited the two sons, the two living sons of the inventor, to come to this event. And I was asked to make the film on their dad. And the Academy offered to pay me. So I called the sons and I said, you know, I just got offered some money for a film I would do for free just to honor your dad. Here's the dough. Why don't you bring out your children, your grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, anybody who wants a link to the television, television industry. Your family is part of this. There is no glory. If they can come out and meet a TV star, walk on the red carpet, fly them out, uh, whoever you can't fit in your hotel room can stay at my house. And at that point, I sort of became an honorary member of the Farnsworth family. This is not a responsibility Phil takes lightly. Because being a Farnsworth has historically not been an easy gig. The fame and fortune Philo should have had, the disappointment that came his way instead. They weighed on the generation after, and the one after that. Krishna Farnsworth again. It drove my father to drink, and it, you know, drove a lot of the family um, ties that should have been stronger. There should have been a lot to celebrate. It, it, it made those things um, harder to, you know, develop and establish and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, I think back, I say, you know, would I rather have my grandfather and my television than television and have my dad's life go the way it did or have my grandfather be a doctor? and grow up, you know, in some suburb, you know, going to the ball game with my dad. I think that's an impossible, you know, question to answer, but you have, you ask it when you lose your dad when he's young. But, Krishna says, and this is what he really wants me to know. That's the past. He wants the next generation, his kids, to be the one that puts that family legacy of disappointment behind them. And that's where Phil comes in and this strange, providential friendship between them. Phil has made it his mission to talk to Krishna's kids about what their great-grandfather did and to show them what he did it with. The lab journals, the first tubes. He even owns one of the harrows from the family plow to literally put those things in their hands. The story's theirs, he says. And soon, it'll be their time to take it forward. For this 14-year-old living in rural Idaho for the summer, to suddenly come up with this idea of transmitting electrons through space was perhaps the most gigantic idea of the 20th century. An uneducated 14-year-old in a field. So to me, there's some magic there. And it really defies reason why I should have the holiest relics of television. But it also defines my destiny that I do. I am here for just a brief moment in time. They have to go on to some place. I'm hoping that it'll be a public museum display. You know, that in perpetuity, they'll be somewhere where some kid can walk in and say, you know, I got a crazy idea. Maybe it isn't so crazy. And if something like that happens, then I got this wonderful time to have all this stuff in my home. <laughs>